Welcome to the Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. We're going to be looking at prophecy. Um, and so I'm going to just uh, share a little bit this morning about what is prophecy and why we do it. Um, but I'm probably going to do it in a roundabout way, okay? So, because I never really just give you anything direct because that would be too easy. Um, so I wanted to share with you a couple of stories. Um, and just trust me, this is in some way related to prophecy, okay? <laughs> just have faith. I'll get there. Um, you remember in the Bible when Jesus meets Philip? And uh, you're sitting in Galilee and, and Philip's just chilling out. And, and Jesus comes along and he just says, hey, come, follow me. And Philip goes, okay, and drops everything he's doing and goes and follows Jesus. Do you remember that? Does that strike anyone as odd? Like, does that seem odd? Like, to me, I read that passage and I'm like, uh, what? And it doesn't help because we watch it in the movies, right? You watch it in the movies, like the Jesus movie or anything like that. And Jesus is basically like floating along on a cloud, you know, and he's got his like bleach blonde hair and he's like got like glistening like 24 pack, you know. And, you know, I mean, the guy just looks incredible, doesn't he? I mean, he's like, a, like I don't even know, like a Norwegian model. Um, and he's just like, come, follow me. And he's just like, oh. You know, that probably wasn't what it was like right? I mean, it just wasn't, right? Jesus just some regular, normal Israeli guy. And he walks along and he's like, hey, come follow me. And he just goes, drops everything and goes, right? And so you're reading this and you're like, who, who is Philip? The guy's insane, right? I mean, pretty insane. And I, I just read these kind of stories and I'm just like, this is weird. Um, there's another story I really love is um, disciples are in their boat um, I don't know if you remember this. Jesus has sent them across in their boat, and he says, right, I want you to go from here over to the other side of the lake, and I'll meet with you um, when we get to the other side. I, I need to go and do my own thing. And so Jesus goes off and does his own thing. They get in the boat, and they start heading out. It's a lovely, like, nice day. They've had a good day preaching to the, the multitudes and healing the sick and doing amazing things. And um, they head out in the boat, and it's, it's quite stormy, and um, they're, they're kind of a bit on edge because it's quite a stormy uh, Day. And so they're probably working very hard to keep the boat, um, you know, on the sea without it wrecking or doing anything um, that boats do. I'm not a sailor. I don't know. Capsizing, filling with water. I don't know what boats do when it's stormy. Um, but they're doing their thing, right? And they're all, most of them are fishermen. They, they know what it was like on a sea. And so for them to be like really saying, this is a storm. We were working hard. It must have been pretty bad. And in the midst of them doing their thing, trying to keep the boat afloat, all that stuff, one of them goes, hey, is that a ghost? And they're like, what the heck is that? Like, and there's this person walking past the boat. And then all of a sudden, someone's like, I reckon that's Jesus. It looks like Jesus. And Peter goes, hey, Jesus, if that's you, I want to come out and join you. Ask me to come out and join you. That's a weird story too, right? I mean, like, why would you do that? Why would you go, there's Jesus. Well, I'm not even sure it's Jesus, but I think that's Jesus. My first thought is, I'd quite like to go out and join him in the storm. Like, that's, that's kind of weird, right? And, and the, the New Testament is full of these kind of odd stories in that it's not actually the story that's odd. It's the way that the people respond to Jesus is weird, right? Because the truth is, okay, we know it's Jesus. So we read it with like, oh, it was Jesus. The guy was like, 
you know, farting butterflies and like, you know, like who's glowing and, you know I mean? Like the guy is like perfection, you know, like nothing wrong. He's just like, oh, um, and the truth is he's just some random Joe. I mean, just a regular guy as far as most of these guys have, have encountered him at a lot of these points. And so like for him to come and go, hey, come follow me to Peter, uh, to, to Philip and Philip just go, yeah, okay. Or a little bit later on, John and James, right? He goes and meets with John and James these, this, these two sons of Zebedee, and they're 14, 15, 16 years old. They're working on their dad's fishing boat, trying to learn the trades. They're going to become fishermen. And Jesus comes along and is like, hey, come follow me. And they're like, well, all right. And they chuck away their stuff and they just leave. And you're like, I, I don't get that, right? I mean, does that seem like a weird response when you don't even know who this guy is? Like, they don't know who he is. He's not done anything yet. Like his first miracle, he already had 12 disciples. The disciples were with him in Cana. Like he's done nothing to make him famous. He's just a random guy, shows up and says, come follow me. And they go, yeah, okay. I mean, that's, that's weird. It was really, really weird to me. Like, I don't know, like, what it looks like in your day-to-day life. But like, if I'm working a nine-to-five job, I've got a family, I've got like stuff going on. If some random person came up to me and said, hey, come follow me. And you just decide, yeah, okay, I'll leave my family, I'll leave my job, and I'll just start following this guy and wander around Israel. Like, it's a pretty like big deal. Like, I think we gloss over the decision these guys made because we know further down the line that it works out really well. Well, actually, most of them got brutally murdered, but... It kind of works out pretty well for them. (laughs) So let's talk about Judaism. Like, so in this culture, in this time, Israel was uh, quite an interesting place. You know, um, there are quite a few interesting cultures. I don't know what to do with this thing. Um, One of the one of the things they did, which is I find fascinating, okay, and we talk about brainwashing, but Israel loved to brainwash, okay. So one of the things they did was at the age of five. Um, in fact, probably about six, between the ages of six and uh, 10, all Israeli children, especially the boys, it was mandatory really for the boys, you would not be an Israeli boy and not do this. Um, Some of the girls uh, would maybe opt out or whatever, but pretty much all Israeli children would go and do something called Beit Sefer. And this basically meant that they would go to the local synagogue and they would uh, learn from the teachers in the synagogue. And what they would do is they would memorize the Torah, okay? And the Torah is Genesis through to, what's the last one? Deuteronomy? My memory's bad. Is that right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Yes, through Deuteronomy. So you guys, it's nice and easy for the Germans because you just call it Moses 1 through Moses 5, right? Um, and and they, they had this, um, this uh, tradition that Moses had written those five books. Um, I hate to break it to the Germans. He didn't. So, I mean, you might want to look into renaming it. Um, But yeah, the tradition was these were the five books that Moses had had been given by God to to teach and instruct. And and they were called the Torah or the teachings or most simply the way. Um, And if you stop and like, go, have you got your Bibles with you? Anyone got a Bible? Grab your Bible and go pick up Genesis through Deuteronomy, Moses 1 through Moses 5. And just have a look at that. How many of you remember being six, seven, eight? Do you remember that age? 
Yeah. You you'd memorized it by then though. <laughs> it's not, it's not easy, is it? It's all names. It's all rules. It's all laws. It's it's not fun, is it? So that that first bit, Genesis through Deuteronomy, Moses one through Moses five. By the age of ten, by the time you've finished Bates Affair, you'd memorized it. Do you know any ten-year-olds that would be able to memorize that? I mean, just it's astonishing to me. Like, really, really fascinating. And this is Jewish culture. This is what they did. And at the end of Bates Affair, just just have a look. Yeah, all five, all five of the chapters, uh, all five of the books. I just want you to get in your head. This is what the Jewish children went through. This is the process that they went through. I want you to understand. That is what they did. They they memorized that chunk of the Bible in the space of those four or five years, through six through ten. And so at the age of ten, you would um, graduate from Bates Affair. You would have memorized this whole process. And you would typically, at this point, you would go back to your family. You would go back and you would learn the family trades. You know, if you were a blacksmith, you'd become a blacksmith. If your dad was a farmer, you'd probably be a farmer. If your parents were fishermen, you know, you'd go and be a fisherman. And so you'd go back and do your family trades. But the best of the best of the best you know, the really, really smart kids, the ones where you could just be like, uh, Genesis 12, 42, and they'd be like, ah, la, 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 and they just give you the verse like that, you know, or, or they'd maybe even have their own interpretations of some of those verses in Bible. You know, they were smart kids. I mean, because just the dumb ones, they just memorized five books of the Bible, right? I'm like, those are crazy smart, right? Um, but like, these were like the best of the best of the best. They would be asked to stay on for something called Beit Talmud. And, um, what that was is they would continue on to memorize more of the Bible. They would memorize Genesis through Malachi. So go open your Bible again. I want you to, I want you to picture that, okay? And this is from the ages of, so, so about 10 through to the age of about uh, 12, uh, uh, sorry, through the age of like 14 or 15, you would uh, go through Beit Talmud, which is memorizing the rest of the Bible as they had it, okay? So Malachi. So Genesis through Malachi, they would work through this process. That was all they had, right? I mean, they didn't have the New Testament. But that, can you imagine? So now think, okay, right at the end of that, you're a 14-year-old. Imagine, you ever met a 14-year-old that would even be capable of that? You know what I mean? It's like crazy. I mean, just like mind-blowing stuff. Um, and so these kids had been the best of the best of the best. I mean, they really understood their stuff. And they spent this time throughout the whole um, period from age six through to 14, they would memorize and study and, and, and be disciplined in these scriptures. But they, they wouldn't just um, in this time be memorizing the scriptures. They'd be starting to engage with, well, what do these scriptures mean? What are they about? What, what, how do we interpret them? How do we engage with them? And I think the last time I spoke, um, or maybe doing Q&A or something, I mentioned that um, the ways the Jews engaged with the scriptures was not black and white. It wasn't a, they mean this, they don't mean that. It was a, well, what could it mean? There's many ways that this could be interpreted and let's discover and explore the many ways. And then I'll pick what I feel is uh, most uh, congruent with the rest of the scriptures, is most in line with the rest of the scriptures. Um, and so it was never, um, a, a, when you were going through Beit Sefer and Beit Talmud, it was never like a brainwashing in a, this is what it means. It was a, learn these scriptures and then learn to question them and engage with them and, and try and figure out what does it mean. 
okay? And so they would go through this process, and the whole time they would have their teachers in the synagogue. There would be um, these uh, teachers that would, um, their, their whole role was to bring people through Beit Sefer and Beit Talmud, which is just to train and, and teach them. But what would happen after that was something called Beit Midrash. And Beit Midrash happened around the age of 15, 16. So by the time you finished um, Beit Sefer, you would, go, you would have the opportunity to go into Beit Midrash. But what had happened is, so, so Beit Sefer was just all the kids, right? Everyone went to that. And then it was the best of the best of the best of the best went into Beit Talmud, right? I mean, these were smart kids. I mean, these are, the kind of kid that memorizes the whole Bible is a smart kid, right? But then what happens is um, they would have rabbis come. And rabbis would um, typically be around the age of 30 um, up through, I mean, once you became a rabbi, that was your job for the rest of your life. But they, they, you never had a rabbi that was younger than 30. 30 was kind of the age that you became a rabbi and started um, doing your own teachings and your own uh, interpretations and, and sharing those. And what they would do is they would um, basically go to the different synagogues and they would try and figure out, okay, who is the best of the best of the best of the best? Who's been through Bates Affair and really knows their stuff, okay? So, I mean, these kids are already really smart. And at this point, to be honest with you, most of these kids at the age of 14, 15, 16, when they finished Bates Affair, they would just go home and back to their family's trade. Most of them would go and become fishermen. They would become farmers or blacksmiths or whatever it was. Um, it was only a select few that thought, you know what? I want to go the next step. I want to give my life to this. And so Beit Midrash was the next step, and that was the process of becoming a rabbi. And Beit Midrash was to become a disciple. And so what happened was, if you were the best of the best of the best, of the best of the best of the best, and so at this point we're talking like a tiny percentage of people. You know, I mean, if, if a thousand people had started, we're talking two people, three people. Not many people have got to this point. And you would go and find a rabbi and you would say, Rabbi, I love what you're doing. I love what you're saying. I love your interpretation and the way that you approach the scriptures. I want to become your disciple. And the disciple would be, uh, the, 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 the rabbi would look at this person and they would go, okay. Uh, and they would put them through an intense process of, of uh, questioning, of examining. And they would genuinely put them through days and days of uh, brutal examination. They'd be like, well, when Jeremiah said this, what do you think it means? And they'd be like, okay. What about in this passage where it says this, what do you think that means? And they'd be like, well, what do you think about, and they would just quiz them for days. And almost always at the end of the process, the rabbi would turn to the, the potential disciple and he would say, you know, you clearly love God a lot. You've given your life to this. You are so smart. You know your stuff. You love God. You're clearly passionate. But I think you should go home and become a fisherman with your family. And this is nine times out of 10. It was a, you're the best of 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 the best. But you're not good enough. You don't have what it takes to be my disciple. It was so hard to become one of these rabbis' disciples. They would only take on a handful of disciples. And so most of the time, 
the best of 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 the best still ended up becoming fishermen or blacksmiths or farmers or accountants or whatever it was that needed to be done. But, but if this rabbi looked at this person and said, they can do what I do. You see, the thing is, the, the rabbi was never about teaching you what he knew. And this is quite interesting because this really flies in the face of what we do often in Christianity. Is In Christianity, most discipleship is about attaining knowledge. So I want to become a disciple so I can know how to be a Christian, so I can know what to do, so I can know the right thing. But actually, rabbis weren't interested in teaching you what to believe. Rabbis were there to teach you how to do what they did. And so it was very much a, you are going to learn to do what I do. And the set of understandings that came to that conclusion, so what they knew would inform what they ended up doing, right? What you believe will always end up informing what you do. So it's really important what you know and what you believe. Um, but this set of beliefs, so the rabbi would have their own in interpretations and their own understandings of the scriptures, right? So they would look through Torah um, and through the Talmud and they would go, well, I think this passage means this. And clearly I, th I think that this means this. But I know there's different beliefs, but this is what I think. And the collection of what they thought um, and, and how they interpret this, the way um, and so the way sounds quite black and white, doesn't it? When we look at it, well, the, the, the scriptures are the way. And it's like, oh yeah, okay, so what's the way? And then the Jews would respond, well, but, well there's thousands of ways. They, they all fall within the way, but there's so many interpretations in that of what it looks like and what it means. And again, this is where we really fall prey to missing God when we think it's a black and white way to approach the scriptures. And when we make it black and white, we miss out on so much of who God is. Um, but each interpretation of the way was called a yoke. It was called the rabbi's yoke. Now, does that fire a little spark or something in you when you hear that? Because it should. Because what did Jesus say further down the line, right? In the, in the gospels, Jesus expressly mentioned, and he said, look, my yoke is easy. Its burden is light. What is he saying in that? Because we think, oh, he's, oh, like, you know, it's all about oxes and yokes and stuff. And yeah, that's where the, the phrase yoke came from. But what's he saying? He's saying the way that I read the scriptures and the interpretation I come to and the way I allow it to inform who God is and how we live life is easy. And that wasn't common for a rabbi because most rabbis' yoke was not easy. It was very, very hard to follow God and to interpret the way. But anyway, when a rabbi did go through this extensive process of examining these potential disciples and they're, they're giving all their answers and they're really hoping that maybe, maybe, maybe they could be the best of 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 the best. When the rabbi sat down and thought, you know what? This is a pretty good kid. Like, I think they can do what I do. I think they have what it takes to actually carry my yoke. They would have a phrase they would say to these disciples. And it was like, um, it was a blessing. It was an initiation. It was, a, it was a, a, a statement of, I think you can do what I could do. I think you have what it takes to do what I do. 
And they would say to the disciple, come, follow me. And that's quite interesting because that takes me all the way back to Philip. And suddenly I'm looking at Philip who's sitting on his own, chilling out. And Philip, we don't know what age he is. We don't know where he is. But the fact is he's not a rabbi and he's not been discipled by anyone else, which says at very best, he was the best of 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 the best, but he wasn't the best. No one wanted him. No one wanted him to be a disciple. And odds are he didn't even make it that far. Odds are he was probably just an average Jewish child that had done Bates Affair, learned some of the scriptures, and then gone home to become a X, Y, or Z, which was his family's trade. And so it's really interesting because can you imagine that process, that process that you go through as a Jewish child of, are you capable of becoming the best that is possible in Israel? Are you capable of becoming the most important thing? A teacher of the scriptures, a person that leads the way, the person that shows what a godly life is. Are you possible? Uh, is that possible for you? Are you capable of that? And the answer to 99% of the children was no. And here's one of them who has heard that, no, you're not good enough. Whether it was you're not good enough to go on to Beit Talmud or whether you, you heard you're not good enough for Beit Madrash, it was a, look, mate, you're going to have to go home because you're not good enough. And so can you imagine that's where you are in life? You've been told, I'm not good enough. Maybe that's not that hard to imagine. Maybe some of you have heard, you're not good enough. But you're sitting there and doing your life and you have that, thing in the back of your head going, I'm not good enough. And down comes a rabbi walking on his own, walks down to you. And I mean, rabbis were the bomb. I mean, they were rock stars. I mean, these guys were the best of 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 the best. And then they had gone through all this training from 16, you know, 15, 16 years old, all the way to 30, where they had then uh, like, progress to become a rabbi themselves. And now they were going to have their own disciples. Now they were the ones that would say, uh, look, you're not that great, I'm afraid. You're really smart. You really love God, but you're going to have to go and do something else. I mean, these guys were it, right? I mean, they were like amazing. And one of these guys just comes wandering down and just comes walking along and says, hey, Come follow me. I mean, Philip hasn't said anything. Philip hasn't done any exams. He hasn't pushed to show just how great he is. This rabbi comes and finds him and then says, I think you can do what I do. What does it look like for God to come and find you? You don't go and find God. I mean, Jesus later on says, you never chose me. I chose you. You have never chose God. God chose you. And it, what does it look like for God to show up and say, hey, I think you can do what I do. Come follow me. That's pretty cool, right? Now you can start to see, I can kind of see where Philip was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to follow this guy. Because this guy was a rock star. He was a rabbi. And not only that, this rabbi said, I believe in you. And that is the one message he would never have heard in this culture. 
you would never have heard you can do what the rabbi does. And so when he comes along to James and John, these like 15, 16 year olds that are, they, I mean, maybe they went through Beit, uh, uh, Beit Talmud uh, uh, and, and they got pretty far, but odds are they probably didn't. Um, but certainly they weren't the best of 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 the best. And they weren't the best of that. And so Jesus again comes along and says, hey, come follow me. And they drop everything. They just go, whoa, because this is the opportunity of a lifetime. This is what people give their lives to. And they try so hard and they search so hard. I mean, you, know, you think of people that work every day from day one in school. Their parents put so much pressure on them and they work and work and work and they want to get straight A's all the way through to high school and all, they want to get the best of the best. And then they go to like, I don't know, like just so they can maybe, maybe, maybe get into like Cambridge or I don't know, MIT or Harvard or something like that. Can you imagine you just bombed at a school? You sucked. You just weren't good enough. Or maybe you were good, but you just weren't good enough. Maybe you got all Bs instead of all As. And can you imagine the president of Harvard knocking on your door and going, hey, please come to our college. I mean, like, you would be like, what's happening? Uh, yeah, like I'm not even going to pack a bag. I'm coming in case you change your mind. You know, like you would be so stoked. And this is what happens. I mean, a rabbi shows up and finds you and then doesn't even check if you know anything. They just say, you can do what I do. Come on. And you'd be like, yeah, let's do this. I mean, that was exciting. So back on the water, we've got Peter standing on a boat going, Jesus, if that's you, I want to come walk on the water. What makes him say that? I mean, what is going on in his head where he goes, oh, I'd like to walk on water with Jesus. I mean, it's kind of a fascinating thing, isn't it? Except if you stop and think about what this discipleship looked like. The discipleship was never, let me tell you what to believe, ever. It just wasn't the process of discipling in, in, in Jerusalem, in, in, in Israel, in this Jewish culture. The process was, watch what I'm doing and do it. And you would intensely listen for what do they believe? How do they understand things? What's their knowledge? And I want to know the same things. But it was always so that you could do what they did. And these disciples have spent years doing what their rabbi did. You know, they followed him for three and a half years doing what he did. They saw him heal the sick. They tried to heal the sick. Sometimes it worked really well. Other times, didn't work at all, right? I mean, they went through the motions of, of, of trying to do what their, what their rabbi did. And you can see this in Peter that the second he sees, that's Jesus. And I'll tell you what, they haven't seen Jesus walk on water before. I mean, that's a new one, right? And that's like, that's probably not even in your list. You know what I mean? Like they've seen him like heal the sick and like multiply food, but none of them are probably like, oh, I wonder when he's going to get around to the walking on water. I mean, that's not even on the list. You know what I mean? You don't even think of people walking on water. Like maybe we do because we've got the Bible that says it, but we wouldn't have like thought like, oh yeah, he obviously can walk on water. Like that's a pretty out there thing. And so all of a sudden you're sitting on the boat and you're going through this thing and it's crazy and there's storms and then Jesus is just like, hey guys what up and just keeps walking and Peter's like Jesus if that's you I'm gonna do the same thing 
And so he jumps in, right? And he starts walking on the water. And that's awesome until he starts sinking, right? And then what happens? What does Jesus say? And this is really interesting because I have my entire life heard this phrase and assumed one thing. And I think I've got it completely upside down. Because what does Jesus say when he starts to sink? He says, Peter, you of little faith. And we read it as this admonishment. Come on, Peter, you should have better faith than you do. You're, you're stupid. Like, why did you not believe in me? And, and we, we look at it as a, a thing that says, Peter, you should be believing in me. But I don't think Peter doubts Jesus at all at any point. I mean, Jesus is standing there on water. It's hard to doubt him. I mean, do you know what I mean? It's like, I'm not going to have doubts in Jesus. He's standing on water. Who's Peter doubting? Himself. Peter's doubting, I can do what he does. Peter is doubting he's really a disciple at this point. You see, Peter doesn't doubt Jesus. Peter doubts what Jesus says about him. Jesus' you of little faith is not an admonishment. It's not to beat him up. It's to say, come on, Peter. Remember, I believe in you. And Peter grabs, he grabs his hands and he pulls them up, doesn't he? But there's such a beauty in this when he grabs his hand and goes, Peter, you have little faith. Come on. You know you can do this. You can do what I do. Exactly. It wasn't to put him down. It was to pick him up. I should look at my notes. I've not looked at them yet. <laughs> I think I spoke on this last school, right? Yeah. yeah. So, what has this got to do with the prophetic, right? I mean, this is a kind of weird introduction to the prophetic, right? I think it's got everything to do with the prophetic. I think we need to understand that if there's one phrase that governs who we are as Christians, it's that phrase, come, follow me. But not in a, all right, do what you're told and blah, blah, blah. But that phrase, come, follow me, is a beckoning into something greater, into who we truly are. It says, I think you can do what I do. I think you can be like me. And that should be the foundational building block of who we are as Christians is this understanding, I can be like God. God believes I can be like God. I mean, that's even more mental, right? I mean, that God genuinely looks at me and goes, I think you've got it what it takes to be just like me. You see, Jesus' message was that, wasn't it? It was ultimately that you look like your Papa Father. You have the capacity to walk in his ways. You have the capacity to be like 
him. And really, that was what he was demonstrating, wasn't it? He was saying, look, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Now go be like me. And this is the voice of the prophetic. And this is because we have to understand if this is what God is saying all the time, every breath that God gives is saturated with that, come, follow me. It's saturated with that, I believe you have what it takes. I think you can be like me. You can do what I do. That is saturated in everything that God speaks, everything that God says. And so before we even think to presume we know how to interpret what God's saying, we have to have that understanding of this is what God's about. Because if not, we hear the you of little faith and we see the big finger from heaven pointing down at the sinking person going, you of little faith. Rather than seeing a hand coming, you of little faith. Picking us up, pulling our faith up rather than putting our faith down. And so there has to be this understanding of this is who my father God is. This is what his desire is for me. This is what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus isn't put down. He's pulled into that. And if we understand that, then when, as we approach communicating the voice of God, as we hear God's voice and we communicate it to others, which is all prophecy is, you know, you're going to hear a lot of really good teaching this week, but I can sum it up for you in one sentence. Listen to God and tell people what he says. There you go. That's the prophetic. I mean, it's just not complicated. Um, now, there's loads of ways you can really mess that up if you don't understand some of the stuff that we'll, we'll teach about this week and all of that. I, I, and so I'm not putting down a whole week of teaching, but I'm just saying it's not a complicated thing. Um, it's very simple to hear God's voice and communicate it. But one of the most important things I want you to grab before you ever presume to say what God's saying is, does what I'm about to say to this other person breathe, come follow me? Does it say you can do what God can do? Does it say God believes in you? Because the message of the gospel has never been believe in God. The message of the gospel has always been God believes in you. We put so much fixation on our faith and actually the gospel never demands faith. It supplies it. Exactly. God is the author and finisher of your faith. He begins it. He finishes it. He does everything in the middle. God never requires faith from you. He supplies it. And so, again, if your prophetic word is demanding faith, you've completely missed the point. Your word should be supplying faith. It should be giving faith. So it sees the sinking person and it goes, here, have some more faith to pull them up rather than saying, you don't have enough faith. <laughs> so prophecy is a communication that calls someone into the life of the Father. It calls them into walking like Jesus. Prophecy, a lot of the times, is going to contradict what the world says. Sometimes the world has 
manage to grab what God's saying better than Christians at times. So <laughs> sometimes it's not going to, right? Um, but a lot of the times it's going to fly in the face of what the world is saying. It's going to fly in the face of what people around you are saying. It's going to fly in the face of what your family or your friends or whoever might say to you. It's going to fly in the face because a lot of the times other people's message is quite different to you can do it. You can be all that God wants you to be. Rebecca's going to talk about First um, Corinthians tomorrow, and, and so I'm not going to go into that in depth. But one of the underlying understandings of, uh, of prophecy is it says in First Corinthians, Paul's outlining what prophecy is, says, uh, what prophecy is, and he says it's encouraging, edifying, and exhorting. Like it, it's it's never putting down. It's never if you're discouraged by a prophecy, it wasn't prophecy. It might be right, but it wasn't prophecy. And exhorting, yeah, um, and, and it depends on the translations as well. Like that's a nice uh, translation because it uh, gives us three words that begin with e. But you know, this you can read it in a few different translations. And that, and again, do that. Read it in a few different translations. Get some of the depth of those words. Um, but but the point is, prophecy is always to pick someone up. It's never to put them down. Prophecy never. Um, there there was a movement for ages and it still is people travel now to to this day as prophets and they go into churches and they point at people and go all right you in the third row stand up uh your name is james and you're cheating on your wife god says sort it out and sit down and then they move on to the next person and it's like and you know what they're right sometimes right but that isn't prophecy that's an abuse of word of knowledge it's an abuse of knowing something that God maybe reveals something, but you abuse how to use it. And you, you don't use the heart of God in that situation because God never discourages. He never puts down. He never um, reveals sin and, and leaves it. That's not his heart. That's not his desire. His desire is to bring reconciliation. And so you might go, hey, you on the third row, your name's James. And God's saying he's working in your relationships. He knows what's going on and he wants to bring restoration you're a loving husband, you're a, you know, and he's going to start speaking who you are. I believe you can be like me. And it's really important that you can hear something from God, but how you interpret it is going to depend on how you see the Father and how you see being a disciple. And so, um, again, I'm just kind of touching on this and all these different things we're going to be teaching on throughout the week in much more depth. I just want to give you this kind of in, introduction and just like, Let's understand that the heart of prophecy is to encourage, it's to exhort, it's to uplift someone. Um, it's always to, to breathe that you can do what I Thank you for listening to the iDestiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.